0: Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guests today are Manfred Steger and Ravi Roy, the co-authors of Neoliberalism, A Very Short Introduction, published in January in its second edition after 10 years by Oxford University Press. George Orwell once said that the word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable. Neoliberalism knows exactly how the word fascism feels. As Professor Steger and Roy point out in their book, the term was first claimed by a group of liberal German economists in the 1930s to stress the importance of the state in ensuring efficient competition. But since Milton Friedman adopted the label in 1951 and governments of right and left conducted broadly aligned economic policies from the mid-1980s onwards, the word neoliberalism has become more of an insult than a pr- precise description. What's new, is that neoliberalism and globalization, which have been hated at least by parts of the left since the 1990s, have now also become swear words on the nationalist right, not only but mostly, but but, but most notably by supporters of former US President Donald Trump. In fact, the recent experience of economic nationalism in government in the US, the UK, Italy and Hungary has prompted calls for the N-word to be reclaimed. In a 2016 essay titled I'm a neoliberal, maybe you are too. Irish economist Sam Bowman wrote, I suggest we follow the suffragettes and wear this label with pride. But what does this label actually mean? Thankfully, we now have this well-timed, very short introduction to explain. Manfred Steger is Professor of Sociology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and Ravi Roy is Associate Professor of Political Science at the Southern Utah University. Manfred and Ravi, welcome both to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having us on the
0: show, Tim. Before we get into, before we get into um, neoliberalism itself, I, I'm curious about the origins of the book. How does it, how does it work with these very short introductions? Did, did the publisher come to you before 2010? Did you pitch the idea to them? Who suggested the new edition and why? And, and finally, what did you change in the second edition? Because I've only read the second one. I haven't read the first.
2: Well, I think uh, this is Manfred Steger. Again, thank you very much, Tim, for having us on your show. Uh, these are great questions, and uh, I'm going to answer perhaps, uh, you know, half of it and then uh, switch over to Ravi, uh, because it was really Ravi who's been the driving force behind the neoliberalism volume. I had previously published uh, a, a volume in the very short introduction series uh, that Oxford is putting out on globalization. And uh, it's been uh, actually a bestseller. So they've been very interested in uh, getting me to write something else. And neoliberalism, as you pointed out in your introduction, is very much related uh, to globalization. But I'm not as much of a political economist as I am a social theorist. So I understood that I had to team up with somebody who had more expertise in this area. And fortunately, uh, my colleague and good friend, Ravi Roy, uh, was willing uh, to do that back in two thousand and nine when we wrote the first edition, uh, and that was published in twenty ten. And uh, it sold well, and the publisher again uh, approached us uh, now ten years later uh, and asked us to do a second edition. Uh, Rabi, you want to take it from here?
1: Well, um, Manfred is being uh, modest. His uh, expertise in ideology made him uh, quite the expert in neoliberalism, and it's something that he had been published well, and it's something. Uh, uh, that he is uh, well connected with through his uh, conceptualization of uh, market globalism, and um, and I knew this, and uh, we became close friends uh, very quickly. And he uh, gave me a signed copy of his globalization uh, VSI book, and um, when I saw that, uh, and there was actually uh, some discussion of neoliberalism in that, and I thought, wow, this would be uh, awesome. Uh, I think very short introduction. So I I called up Manfred and Manfred, I'll never forget this. I said, I, I pitched the idea uh, to you and you said, you said, "Ravi, uh, that's the best idea you've had. Uh, all your ideas are good, but I think that's the best one. <laughs> and so uh, from there, uh, Manfred was, uh, as he says, uh, already had a, uh, a very strong relationship with uh, OUP and specifically the Very Short Introduction series, which is uh, occupies a very special place at Oxford University Press. And uh, Manford was uh, their star with the globalization title. So uh, I wasn't there for the meeting between him and the executive uh, acquisitions editor. But I would imagine uh, that went
0: uh, very well because next thing I know, we had a contract. <laughs> so you, I mean, you wrote the first one immediately after the great financial crisis. I presume that was the catalyst for it. Is there, am I right?
2: That's correct. Uh, but I think uh, it even goes back a little bit further. If you uh, remember uh, 9-11 and the question of transnational terrorism, to mm. what extent are social uh, sorts of uh, phases of instability, especially relating to questions of security and nation state borders, uh, you know, uh, becoming, uh, part of this whole discussion of, uh, globalization and the integration of global markets. Uh, so I think it goes back a little bit further. But as you point out, Tim, very correctly, it really came to a head in 2008 with the global financial crisis. And it was very, very clear that a lot of people out there uh, understood that something was shifting. Uh, and they had thought that neoliberalism was this one, you know, unified uh, theory, policy package. But as we point out in our book, there are uh, variations of neoliberalism. Uh, it's truly global. Uh, and they're not exactly uh, all the same, they belong to a family, but they're different. And our book was really premised on the idea of introducing people to what neoliberalism is about, but not in terms of one unified doctrine. But in terms of these variations, and that's why our book gets into uh, the various applications of this doctrine uh, in different contexts, such as uh, Europe and North America, and Asia, and uh, Africa, and uh, South America.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's as you point out, it's a, it's a very short book, uh, but it does contain a lot of modern history and and while you assigned the neoliberal label to leaders from Thatcher and Reagan to Clinton, Blair, and even Deng Xiaoping, you, you make some nice differentiations, as you, as you point out there. For example, Thatcher was a fiscal conservative and Reagan wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you say of Clinton and especially Blair, uh, there's this quote, um, the self-regulating market went hand-in-hand with cosmopolitan principles of universal democracy, freedom, and human rights – and this allied them with neoliberal institutionalists who opposed traditional foreign policy realism. Can, can you expand on these on these big differences, mm-hmm.
2: Ravi? You want to take
0: that? Yeah. So uh, the idea of
1: welfare retrenchment, I think, is what unified uh, that particular wave of now. I'm talking about late '70s, uh, '1980s uh, wave of neoliberalism among those uh, Anglo-American leaders. Uh, the thing that separated them was a very uh, different reading or a different uh, internalization of having read similar sources. Um, so, for example, both of them were suspicious of big bureaucracy. And that comes in part because uh, Bill Niskanen, who Reagan relied on, in fact, he was the uh, uh, lead economic advisor in the Council of Economic Advisors to Reagan, but Thatcher had also read his book. And in fact, the book on bureaucracy that Ms. Scanlon wrote uh, is a staple in public administration uh, on the conservative side. And she, I believe, I've read somewhere that she actually made that book on bureaucracy uh, required reading for every member of her cabinet. But uh, being coming from a monetarist uh, viewpoint, uh, she was very and, and 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 believing in the virtues of a strong pound first and foremost. That's kind of what. Uh, uh, directed her thinking about things like uh, budget deficit, whereas Reagan was not so concerned about uh, the strength of the U.S. dollar. I think his sort of um, rather lackadaisical lazidesic- uh, approach to uh, a strong dollar was best uh, summed up uh, when I read somewhere where he said, well, what's wrong with the weaker dollar Will make our exports more competitive? Um, And he took that same kind of, um, I won't call it neglect of the deficit, but not so direct approach to the handling of the deficit. He believed first and foremost that getting government off the backs of uh, private people by cutting, uh, uh, for example, marginal tax rates uh, and cutting business uh, corporate taxes, um, although in the end, as we point out, that's not necessarily what happened, but cutting uh, business corporate taxes. Um, was the best way to free up entrepreneurial energy that would cause the economy to grow. It's that growth then that would allow more revenues to be generated uh, as a uh, as an auxiliary to that growth that can then be used indirectly to pay back uh, the budget. Deficit. So that kind of explains their different approaches to something like uh, handling the the budget deficits. That was a salient issue at that time.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I'm I'm going to quote another neoliberal apart from Sam Bowman. Um, This person said most of the time neoliberal simply means capitalist, although to varying degrees, depending on the pundit. What, what makes a neoliberal rather than say a classical liberal or an auto liberal? What, what I I know earlier in the book, you identify these four dimensions of neoliberalism. Are those the differences?
2: I think to some extent those are the differences, and I think it might be good to get into those. But before we yeah. get into those four dimensions, uh, for for me, uh, one of the big things about this prefix "neo" uh, in front of this classical liberal ideal of the min- of minimal state interference in the economy is the fact that what makes it neo is that capitalism went through. Uh, decades of a phase that is referred to as controlled capitalism, or some people refer to it as Keynesianism. In other words, uh, there were, uh, you know, starting in the 1930s with the Great Depression, and especially after World War II, there was a general consensus that capitalism had gone off the rail, it needed to be controlled, this notion of self-regulating markets did not work, it led to the, the, the 1929 crash and the ensuing economic crisis. And government had a role in making sure that uh, the economy was, or capitalism, was functioning properly. And that meant that capitalism had to be regulated to some extent. And even uh, conservative uh, political leaders uh, like uh, Richard Nixon, Uh, in the early 70s, referred to himself as a Keynesian. So there was a general consensus that this idea of uh, regulating the economy, that government had a role, that it was not about just hands-off, laissez-faire, free market uh, uh, agenda, was widely shared. So what happened, as Ravi described, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a real sea change in a sense that, this idea of controlled capitalism uh, was gradually given up. And what was neo about this liberalism is that in a way it was a new introduction of an old ideal in the context of uh relatively successful three or four decades of controlled capitalism. So the newness also refers to a phase or a form of capitalism that emerged. After this Keynesian controlled uh, phase or period,
0: mm-hmm. actually, can we come back to the for the four, four points? Because I'd like to follow up on 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 a point you well on that main point you made. You you in the book you you, you rightly identify the nineteen seventies oil shock as decisive in the in the switch towards this greater economic liberalism in the U.S., the U.K., and, and Latin America. What do you think would have happened without the shock? Would economies have moved in the same direction, but more slowly? Or do you think things would have broadly carried on the same?
2: No, I think I think that it, it, it would have moved in the direction of neoliberalism. It may have taken a little bit more time. But uh, as we all know, uh, energy is at the very core of capitalism, right? I mean, you can't run capitalism... Uh, without uh, 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 energy and energy policy and 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 obviously the 19th century was the the century of coal and the 20th century is the century of, of petroleum and if uh, petroleum prices literally overnight as it happened in the 1970s quadruple uh, in 73 and then again uh, double more than double in 79 so we're really talking about two oil shocks this means, that, uh, you know, capitalism, in a way, has to move (laughs) into uh, a different phase that can accommodate uh, what is happening here. So in in that sense, uh, I think that these oil shocks were really catalysts that uh, you could call them great accelerators. Uh, But I think it would have moved uh, anyway, because there were other signs that Keynesianism controlled capitalism was running into problems. And, uh, just to, to generalize all of these problems and put them in one basket, it would be that the, the profits of, of corporate capitalism, in other words, the profit of, of the big sharks of capitalism, of the big companies, uh, and even small companies were shrinking. And every time profits shrink, Capitalism has to sort of reinvent itself, has to generate a new phase to return uh, capitalism to profitability. So the shrinking uh, profit base uh, was there and would have anyway, I think, led to this sort of restructuring of capitalism away from controlled capitalism and toward this neoliberal phase. Hmm.
0: So uh, yeah, can we come back to the four dimensions because I think it, 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 it's very useful to try and really narrow down what neoliberalism is compared to these other types of liberalism? Could you take us through these uh, sure, four sure, dimensions?
2: Absolutely. Uh, let's just think of let's just think of neoliberalism as you know something like a jewel or a diamond, right? Uh, which means that you can actually turn it around, and uh, depending on uh, the angle and the light that's being reflected, it might give you slightly different colors and slightly different uh, 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 optical uh, sensations, but it's still the same jewel. So uh, I'm arguing that there are, uh, Rabin arguing that there are four dimensions or four faces, four facets uh, of uh, neoliberalism. The first one is that it's, that it's an ideology. And what are ideologies? Ideologies are, uh, shared, widely shared ideas and beliefs that are accepted as truth by certain groups in society, right? So they really serve as these these conceptual maps or mental models, as Ravi points out in his work, uh, that help guide people through, uh, you know, what is a complexity of our political and social worlds. Uh, so they sort of form a simplistic but coherent picture of the world uh, as they claim it is. And then these ideas and and beliefs are being sold to the general public. And if they're successful, then most people believe in this ideology. So there's a certain consciousness dimension to neoliberalism as as an ideology, as a thought system. Uh, The second facet uh, of neoliberalism is what we could call a governmentality. And governmentality really uh, is linked to, the term is linked to Uh, The social thinker, Michel Foucault, who talks about modes of governance that are based on certain premises and logics or or power relations. So a neoliberal governmentality is rooted in the logic of entrepreneurialism, such as competitiveness and self-interest and decentralization. It celebrates individual empowerment. Uh, It celebrates this notion that uh, a self-regulating free market should be the model for all proper governments. So it's no longer a question of government pursuing the public good, and that may be expensive, it may not generate profit, but since it's a public good, we might as well pay for it. It's the idea that government should run like a company, and it should be efficient, like an economic enterprise, and ultimately it should generate profits. So there's this sense that government and uh, businesses are really run by the same governmentality, by the same logic uh, of market-oriented uh, behavior. The third uh, phase is, uh, and we talked, I think, a little bit about that already, uh, neoliberalism is also a concrete set of public policies. And Ravi and I talk about the DLP formula. D stands for deregulation of the economy. L stands for liberalization, mostly liberalization of trade and industry, and P stands for privatization of state-owned enterprises. Uh, So, in other words, this DLP formula is something that most neoliberals, uh, neoliberal governments have pursued. They want to deregulate the economy, they want to have free trade, and they want to push for uh, privatization of previously state-owned enterprises. We saw that, for example. In the UK uh, very much under Thatcher. And that's of course linked to uh, the idea that we should reduce uh, the power of unions. So union busting is part of neoliberalism, that we should reduce social services and welfare programs, because people should p- sort of pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Uh, we should uh, uh have massive tax cuts, especially as Ravi pointed out for businesses and high-income earners. So this uh whole idea of public policies that are driving in a way uh, what you could call uh, a sort of a uh, government off the back of industry uh, uh, attitude. And then finally, uh, neoliberalism is also uh, a certain form or phase of capitalism. I talked about this before. Uh, It's a phase of capitalism that follows Keynesianism or controlled capitalism. So we can see it in terms of Uh, a phase that has its own internal coherence coherence, and also a set of corresponding political and economic institutions that, again, and here comes the ideology, that reinforce people's belief in the naturalness of this particular form that we call neoliberal capitalism. So all those four together, if you put them together, I think you get a more holistic picture of what neoliberalism is, and it allows you to talk about mental models and very concrete pragmatic policies without necessarily involving yourself in a contradiction because you're arguing that they all belong together
0: hmm. i mean given given those dimensions you've set out and and the history you set out in the book why do you think the term has become so associated in the in the public mind certainly in the last five to 10 years with the center left, with, with Blair, with Clinton, with Robert Rubin and uh, Lawrence Summers, et cetera. Um, yeah. How how would you explain that?
2: Robbie, you want to take
0: that? Yeah. I think, um, as
1: my colleague, Mark Blythe, uh, said some years ago, um, I think it was in an interview. He said, uh, Neil, neoliberalism uh, as we know it, and he was writing in 2010, I think. Uh, it may have germinated or began with the with the new right of Reagan and Thatcher, for example, but it uh, blossomed under. Uh, and I got to be careful here because the new left means something different in the American context from the international one. But with the third way, uh, new left under uh, Clinton and Blair, and I think this has to do with a transformation of of what we think. On both the left and the right of what creates wealth, and I think that the shift uh, towards financialization or the shift towards uh, specifically financial institutions or the financial sector away from manufacturing that happened to occur from you know post 1970s right through to the 1990s, the logic of what creates wealth was very sympathetic with this idea of uh, a A state that uh, a government that it wants takes its hands uh, off of uh, the finance sector and lets the finance sector uh, do whatever it needs to do uh, through deregulation um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, subsidizes uh, uh, big business and uh, big finance in ways that uh, it hadn't previously. And uh, in answering that question, I'd like to just quickly uh, revisit, uh, you asked the question, what's neo about? Neoliberalism, I'm I'm talking simply now about uh, uh, the intellectual and ideological uh, conceptualization of the term uh, neoliberalism as distinct from classical liberalism. If we associate for a moment, let's just uh, associate classical liberalism with uh, Adam Smith, for whom that's known. Um, We'll take something, for example, like inequality. And the role of business in classical liberalism, at least according to Smith and his followers, um, liberalism was about getting the state, uh, getting the monarch, getting the, uh, the 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 political state out of the affairs of the market. So it's about a free market in which it's an empowerment of both uh, both consumers and producers to find uh, a way to negotiate. Uh, you know, you know, free. Of the interference of government and find an equilibrium, and then the market clears and uh, life is good. And in that process, uh, Adam Smith is very clear that inequality is a detriment to society, and that what is happening under the, that system that he was writing at that time was that the state was coming down on the side of business and consumers and labor were being uh, exploited in that process. Now we come to neoliberalism, and it's it's a different kind of thing it makes no apologies for inequality it makes no apologies for the state um, supporting business and subsidizing business when it when it when it suits it um Thatcher even even you say what difference does it make if the rich are getting richer uh, relative to the poor as long as the poor are absolutely better off under this new system that that's okay she did not see a contra- a problem with inequality in the way that Adam Smith did
0: But wouldn't that same attitude apply to countries that would be considered, for example, by, say, um, Bernie Sanders as democratic socialist countries? So I'm thinking of countries like Sweden or Denmark or or the Netherlands, where they still um, have inequalities. They still, I mean, in the case of Sweden, uh, very liberal uh, economic structure. The difference is that they have a very large state uh, and 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 large taxation and if you lose if you lose your job you go into this you know your your welfare payment is very high but it's limited for a uh, say for a year so i'm trying to i'm trying to narrow down the difference you know what what is very specifically neoliberal compared to social democratic or or auto liberal do do you see what i'm asking
1: yeah so in the case of so, uh, as Manfred said, uh, the the neoliberal comes cannot be understood without the controlled capitalist era. Uh, so that's that that's a huge piece of uh, piece of this. It's a revisitation um, of some of these uh, older ideas, but recast it in a new way. Uh, what I would say is is that um, one of the things that's happened out of these social democratic countries is they are less social democratic than they used to be. And that has a lot to do with the imperatives of neoliberal globalization. And so, uh, uh, even in the case of Sweden, um, you know they have some of the lowest corporate taxes, if not the lowest corporate uh, uh, corporate taxes of any industrial democracy. Um, and while that, while they do do that, you're right; they they subsidize uh, healthcare. Uh, they um, they have laws uh, about the disparity between the salaries of the officers of a, of a company and the lowest paid uh, worker in that company or organization. So they have uh, found their own way to deal with uh, neoliberal hegemony, if you like, which is to uh, make their organizations leaner and meaner and or, or allow that to happen on the one hand. But the thing that they've been able to retain to a certain extent although they've made modifications as well. We've seen welfare retrenchment even in the case of Sweden, Um, and all of that is a part of this neoliberal transition.
2: Let me just take a very brief crack at it uh, again. I think that what what, uh, your your, uh, uh, audience should understand is that every time capitalism runs into a crisis, uh, the question then becomes, what can we do to get out of this crisis? And it usually starts with ideas. That then have to get translated into policies, right? So in the 1930s, the ideas of how what can we do to get out of this horrible Great Depression came predominantly from social democracy, from labor. Uh, they won the battle of ideas and they said, uh, you know, in, in the words of John Maynard Keynes, is we have to create a different kind of thinking about the economy in order to pull out of the problems that we find ourselves in. And as a result of that, uh, uh, you know, winning the battle of ideas over the next few decades, we saw, you know, the age of controlled capitalism. Now in the 1970s, capitalism is running again into a systemic crisis. And again, the question becomes, what can we do basically to save capitalism or to make capitalism work again? And this time it's the conservatives. It's it's Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, and his advisors. It's it's Margaret Thatcher and her advisors who have ideas that turn out to be uh, the ideas that get translated, picked up by you know, chive with voters, get picked up, and get implemented. And I think what we're seeing now, and this might move us into this sort of last phase of, of, of neoliberalism, which is you know the last ten years since the, the global financial crisis, is that these ideas are no longer salvageable in their totality. Some of them have survived. Others have really run aground this cliff of the 2008 global financial crisis that then led to what you you could call the explosion of national populism and populist politics uh, around the world. So the the core here is what's really new about uh, liberalism, is sort of a reinvention of uh, how capitalist and the capitalist economy can work based on old principles, uh, classical liberal principles, that we don't fully take over, that we have to twist and turn, but we can find inspiration from those ideas.
0: Yeah, it's. it's I, I'm struck by what you said about the the explosion of uh, of populism uh, globally. I, I think some people are some surprising people are, are taking the experience of the last five years as as a sort of object lesson in in what they think they may have given up. And you're seeing some people actually turning towards what what you would describe as neoliberalism as as a golden age. Do you, I presume you think that's a mistake?
2: Yeah, I I, I do think that's a mistake. And I think that in in many ways, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, the old adage that you can't step into the same river uh, a second time. Uh, And I think it's the same thing here. There's a certain kind of a a logic that uh, calls out for, uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense, calls out for new ideas, calls out for new uh, policy applications. And I don't think, you know, you can't just go back and say, well, you know, let's resurrect neoliberalism with a more human face, and that's going to uh, ultimately defeat these new forms uh, of uh, populism, of nationalism that we're seeing in the world. Uh, I don't think that that's the way it's going to work. At the same time, I think some, as we see, some ideas of neoliberalism so powerful and apparently still workable that even national populists uh, like uh, Donald Trump or, or Jair Bolsonaro, uh, or Victor Urban, you know, have, have picked them up and carried them forward in spite of their nationalism and, 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 uh, uh, anti-immigrationism. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's an important development, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, in this respect, I was, I was very struck at how critical you were of, um, the Barack Obama administration, um, yeah. I mean, you say he turned a blind eye to monopolistic practices by big tech and and financial services, and even the healthcare plan was designed in the interest of insurance companies. But I was most interested in this idea that he represented, or you know, he was the figurehead of a third wave of neoliberalism, where quote human agency and decisional authority is increasingly subordinated to big data-driven algorithms. That's. Very interesting. Can you expand on that, Robbie? Yeah, I think in the case
1: of Barack Obama, he was kind of a victim of his time. These things were already in the mix, and as uh, as Manfred and I were talking earlier uh, with one another, uh, Barack Obama did not have a clear policy agenda. He had a he had a leadership agenda, but he didn't have a policy agenda, and 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 he deserves uh, some. Uh, uh a break because he was inheriting uh, a, a political economy at a time that was going through many things, not just the financial crisis but the underlying current that supported it. It was uh you know this uh, uh this other great revolution in human uh invention and productivity, which was you know the the new tech economy and it had largely evolved, you know, through startup-minded mentality. There wasn't any strategic, I think, vision for how that unfolded. And I think it all uh, happened to come to uh, uh, fruition at a time when uh, the financialization processes, which, again, were driven by these uh, these high-tech, uh, financially-engineered models, um, were beginning to expose their weaknesses, so he had all these things uh, upon him when he came into office. So I just think that uh, he did. He wasn't uh, prepared. I don't think he had the uh, technical expertise at his disposal, or the uh, or the anticipation that all these things would happen. So I think he was more reacting to uh, these forces, these overwhelming forces uh, that were just uh, a point. Uh, that all culminated at a particular time in history. Um, and uh, I don't think it's uh, any secret that what he ultimately ended up settling for in the case of health care was something uh, that Congress would be willing to pass and put on his desk. And so that's exactly what he did. And um, there's all kinds of stories of uh, and speculations over, uh, you know, why that was. We don't, Uh, Really touch on that, but this is the this is the result. It largely was driven by the insurance companies. It's no accident that it looked uh, his health care plan that he ended up signing looks very much like the one, the pro business one that came out of the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, Um, if I
2: can jump in at at this point, I think think Rami makes good points, but I would be a little bit tougher uh, on Obama and also. Uh, point out that he was a, 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 you know, Democratic Leadership Council president. In other words, uh, he believed in basically the same uh, neoliberal uh, third-way approach that Bill Clinton believed in. And if you you look at what he surrounded himself with, you know, Timothy Geithner, for example, uh, as his uh, first uh, uh, secretary of the Treasury, Uh, These are all people who are linked to the roaring 90s and this kind of third-way neoliberalism. And when he had an opportunity to actually reshape uh, uh, capitalism in in a perhaps more controlled uh, way, in other words, to reimpose some controls on capitalism, he absolutely did not want to do that. And what he did is he basically bailed out finance capitalism, uh, and that caused a lot of anger that caused a lot of anxiety. And you have the origins of the Tea Party in the United States. I think you even have the origins, if you globalize this, of uh, the Leave campaign uh, in the UK uh, with regard to Brexit. Uh, This anger and resentment, this politics of anger and resentment really emerged when people realized that instead of providing massive help to people who had lost their house, who could not pay their mortgages, who had lost jobs, most of the money, most of the bailout money went to the finance industry. That's when Obama put his cards on the table, his economic cards on the table. And it was clear that he was with uh, industry, that he was with corporate capitalism. And I think that the right at that point shifted tremendously. And we're still living through that phase, because what happened is that from a party, a conservative party that was oriented towards big capital, uh, the, the conservative party shifted towards the working class, particularly the white working class. And it was Donald Trump who exploited that to the max. And that's still the kind of uh, uh, ideological landscape that we're inhabiting now, uh, a, a reconstructed, a reconfigured conservatism away from this uh, you know, corporatism, and towards, uh, especially rhetorically, towards uh, a white working class.
0: At the same time, of course, it is pushing other people who were traditionally, say, Republican or Conservative Party voters, uh, in the opposite direction, okay. in, in in the direction of of in inverted commas sort of uh, uh, the neoliberal golden age. Okay. Can I can I ask you uh, to follow up on the on the third wave? I mean this is inevitable because it is a very short book um so I, this is not this is not to uh this is not to complain but I'm just interested where you say that the third wave of neoliberalism is this period where human agency and decisional authority is increasingly subordinated to big data driven algorithms you clearly have a sort of vision of the of a potential neoliberal future could you could you try and outline that
2: yeah uh so what i would say is what we are what we are looking at, and this is where globalization comes in. I think, uh, in, in a massive way, uh, because we have to understand, of course, and this is the point we are making in the book, that neoliberalism is a global phenomenon, right? So, what we have to understand is that if you think of uh, neoliberal globalization or global neoliberalism in the nineteen nineties, and you try to associate a concrete. Uh, concept of phenomena with it, right? It probably would be something like free trade, right? It probably would be something like global value chains, uh, right, uh, the rise of retailers like Walmart, where you have uh, cheap production in the global south, particularly China, and these commodities, these goods, uh, you know, get this assembled in different places in the world, and then they enter the consumer markets to kind of bring down prices, you can go to Walmart, and you Or Woolworth or whatever it is, and you can buy cheaply, much more cheaply than uh, you could do that before. So globalization primarily was about what you could call objectified globalization in forms of commodities and trade. And what has changed is that increasingly globalization is moving from this objectified or embodied form uh, of mobilities to uh, digital forms of mobility. In other words, we're talking about precisely uh, information, uh, data, ideas that get transmitted, of course, amplified through social media, algorithms, uh, AI, uh, uh, telecommunication, uh, all of those things, uh, uh, office work, remote work, and so on and so forth. In other words, what we're seeing is a you could call it a cannibalization of embodied, objectified globalization by disembodied digital globalization, which means that capitalism is moving more and more into cyberspace, more and more into this world of disembodied world of, uh, you know, data mobility. And that means that for neoliberalism, this new phase will be one in which you could, uh, you know, there are books out on that. You could talk about things like uh, data capitalism or digital capitalism, or some people, critics call it surveillance capitalism because of all the the, the sort of surveillance technology that goes along with that. And I think ultimately we're moving, and especially now with COVID-19, right, uh, which is a a great catalyst for making things even more cyberspace-oriented than they were before. We're moving into a phase where neoliberalism is becoming more and more disembodied, where people spend more and more time in cyberspace, more and more time in making money, in 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 working uh, through digital networks rather than in person uh, at home. Uh, we are now at a point in the United States, believe it or not, uh, in uh, 2021, where 27 percent of the workforce is working from home digitally. So uh, I think this is where. Uh, 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 neoliberalism is going and it has its pluses and minuses right i mean the big minus is surveillance authoritarianism uh the ability of manipulation uh the fact that we are no longer having these sort of social interactions that we used to have in an embodied form uh, and you know of course the advantages is flexibility advantages is that you know you don't have to commute that much anymore you can actually spend more time at home and you can be more of a uh, sort of an architect of your own time. But uh, it's, it's going to be this direction, I think, that Ravi and I are arguing uh, we are moving into.
1: Yeah, and just to add to that, part of this disembodiment that Manfred so eloquently laid out is also uh, contributing to uh, the removal of human agency. That's what John Kay talks about in his book, Other People's Money, The Real Business of Finance is that we are seeing with the uh, intentional uh, abdication of human agency over to these algorithms, to these AI, we are losing something fundamental in that process. And as uh, the neuroeconomist, Paul Zaxel, uh, has been able to demonstrate uh, one of the things that AI cannot do uh, and why it will never be able to replicate uh, human decision-making is AI will never be able to replicate human uh, empathy in the way that human beings uh, interact with one another. So this disembodiment is leading to the further disenfranchisement of human beings from connecting with one another. And it's the lack of that human connectiveness that's actually contributing to the degradation of human agency and and the strengths that all that involves in decision-making over our financial And political future, as we as we as we uh, intentionally give that away, we are uh, in fact giving away an important piece of who we are. And with that, um, uh, as I said, the big piece of that is the empathy that no computer will be able to, uh, maybe able to mimic it, but never be able to fully internalize it and be able to make decisions on the base of it, because computers are just not empathetic in the same way that humans are
0: biologically. Well, uh, with that dystopian outlook, um, we will we'll wind this up. And I, to finish, I, I've asked both of you to, uh, in advance of the interview, to to recommend a book each and to explain your choice. Re- Revi, you go first.
1: Yeah, I, I just mentioned the one, Other People's Money, The Real Business of Finance by John Kay. The, uh, from the point of view of looking at uh, this third wave of neoliberalism as being uh, big Finance, uh, this book has helped me um, in, uh, in in so many ways uh, con- conceptualize this issue. The other one uh, is The End of Alchemy, Money, Banking, and the Future of the Global Economy by Mervyn King. And um, and one of the books that I've relied on to that sort of uh, gave us a glimpse at this was a book written by W. Overs Debing called The New Economics for Industry and Government and Education, which was almost 30 years ago when he wrote it. But he sort of warned us about this uh, this problem of uh, giving away human agency. Now, W. R. Deming happened to be writing at a time when we were moving from manufacturing based the logic of manufacturing based wealth creation uh, to this kind of uh, uh, financial uh, financialization uh, that we are in now. Uh, but we, if you if you look at the system uh, of financialization, it's a incestuous system. And we need to bring human agency back into it and be able to think, bring in people that are capable of looking at the problem from a systems level. So it's those three books I would recommend.
2: Thank you.
0: And Manfred?
2: Well, uh, you were asking us, Tim, uh, about the future of neoliberalism. I want to take us back to the past and actually suggest a novel written by one of my uh, favorite novelists, uh, Robert Harris. Uh, and it's called Imperium. Uh, and it's about the late Roman Republic. And it's yeah, actually I love that book. <laughs> the first book uh, in a trilogy that really lays out the life of Cicero or it's built around uh, Cicero's life. And what I really love about it, aside from the fact that he's such a terrific writer and such an uh, you know an enjoyable and, and, and fascinating uh, uh, style, what I really like about it is uh, it shows... How many of the problems that we think uh, are really the problems of our time, of the contemporary age, whether it's finance, whether it's government, uh, whether it's even uh, human relations and, and human agency, actually are problems that have been around for a very, very long time. And he lays this, this out in a very convincingly in this trilogy. And uh, I think uh, offers us uh, a wonderful framework for understanding our time uh, is not necessarily as unique as we think it is. And that means we can really learn from the past. And that for me, you know, I'm a big, big uh, uh, history buff and I love historical novels. I think that's one of the real uh, great ways of, of thinking about the future through uh, the help or uh, uh, bringing in the past. Okay.
0: Well, today I have been talking to Manfred Steger and Ravi Roy about their Neoliberalism, A Very Short Introduction, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Uh, Ravi and Manfred, thank you both very much for coming on.
2: Thank you, Tim. Much appreciated.
1: Thank you, Tim. This was great.